again, this, you know, this fullback wanting just to, to hit and to have power, like you hand me flags, and I'm like, what am I supposed to do with these? Like, these are weird. And so we're playing a random game. And one of the things that you cannot do is tackle someone. It's very frowned upon. You know, you want to you you be classy. And so I'm playing this game, and so I'm basically, I'm going out for this catch. And this guy just full on, just trucks me from, like, the back. So I'm just blind, blindsided, cheap-shotted. I get up, and I'm, I'm pretty frustrated at this point, to be honest. And I was so proud of myself because, you know, I channeled it. I calmed down. There was, you know, I looked at the guy. There was no profanity. There was nothing related to mom jokes. There was nothing that was like, whoa, shouldn't have said that. All I did was I looked at him, and I said, lower the shoulder again, and let's see what happens. Because <laughs> you know? I, I was not going to let him cheap shot me twice. And so this guy, though, for whatever reason, just flips out. And so he actually like, he, like, pushes somebody, tries to get to me, and just starts this like trash talking. Like, bro, I was first team all state. I'm like, good for you. Like, whatever. You know, as I'm trying to just go back in the huddle because I'm not trying to, to, st- to start a fight here. And so he was like, bro, why'd you say that? I was, f- I was first team all state. I was first team all state. I'm like, okay, whatever. And so, but as, as I'm walking back in, he tried to start a fight with me then. Actually ran into the dude like four months later on campus. Didn't recognize him, but he still tried to start a fight with me. And so he was pretty upset. But in that moment, I learned two things. First is it's always good to walk away from a fight. <laughs> Don't be that guy. Secondly, though, it was interesting to me how quickly he jumped to this comparison of trying to justify his worth before someone else or of trying to be like, well, this is why I did that or this is why I am because this is who I am. And, and, and I just say this in the idea of this morning we're actually talking about the mask of comparison. And this idea that sports and social media and friend groups and relationships and all of these things, we live in a world and culture that teaches us to size someone up the moment they walk into a room. That we're constantly comparing. That, you know, if, if, if it's athletics, it's like, okay, well, how fast is he? You know, what's his 40 time? What's he bench? You know, or, or if it's social media, well, how many likes did that selfie get on Instagram? Or how many people are looking at my story? Like, there's always this idea that we're comparing ourselves to something else and realizing that often it's sad because we can use comparison to either justify our worth. We can either like look at somebody and be like, I'm better than them. And you can elevate yourself or often we let comparison fuel our insecurities because we look at somebody else and we're like, there's no way I could ever live up to that. I could never be that. And so this comparison is often a vicious cycle. And so the heart of Jesus isn't that. And we're going to dive more into that later. But the idea that we live in a culture and a world that teaches us from the moment, from the moment we're growing up, that we're constantly sizing people up. We're constantly comparing. And so this idea of of, of how how to take off that mask. And and so that's what we're talking about this morning. And so, um, you know, and, and I often think, too, as we're walking into the building, I think there's potentially one of two states of comparison that we could be in as well. That I think often we go through something tough. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, like, like, you know, like sometimes things happen in life that are a bummer. And yet what we can do though, is we can let one situation just seep into other areas of our life to where we actually lose perspective. You know, so like, like an example of like, maybe let's say you relationally went through a tough breakup and, and, and legitimately like that was tough. I'm not diminishing that in any way, shape or form, but often we can let one thing seep into other things that then kill our joy constantly to where we're like, life is terrible. But it's like, no, no. If you look around, there's so many other blessings, but we're losing sight of what really matters. And so often this idea that comparison kills our contentment, 
that, that, that it robs us of that. And so Jesus isn't wanting us to have a comparison mentality. He's wanting us to actually see a broader perspective. And so I would just say this too, something I've learned is that every season has its beauty and its burdens. And I think often we can become so concerned and fixated with the thorns that we forget to look up and see the rose blossoming right in front of us. That often, like, again, each season is going to have good and bad. That there's going to be tough things, there's going to be great things, and yet if we come in with this idea that all of my joy is being robbed because of a circumstance, we can't actually see the thing that God is teaching us. That these vital areas of growth, of shaping, but if we miss it, it's because we're focusing on something else and we're comparing and it's this grass is always greener mentality. At the same time, I think we can go into this other comparison idea of, of maybe we are walking through something and something's tough. But then we look and we see somebody else's story and it's like, okay, well, I'm hurting with this, but, but look at what they're going through. That's so much worse. And often that forces us then, we almost feel guilty like hurting. We feel guilty wrestling. And so we're actually forced to almost just suppress that and be like, it could be worse. It could be worse. And while like that's true in the idea of we want healthy perspective, I just want to say, if it matters to you, it matters to God. Like, I think oftentimes there's something that we think is too little or too simple to approach. We're like, God's, God's busy with other bigger stuff. No, 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 no. He, he's a protective father. And any protective father, it, it doesn't matter if it doesn't seem like a big deal to him. If it's a big deal to you, it matters. And so wanting to then again, like shed off these comparisons and just be who we are before God. Like, like I'm hurting or I'm doing well. It's, it's not about how am I doing in comparison to other people. It's how am I doing in my walk with Jesus and my walk alone. So as I said, Luke 18, this is where we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna dive into, into the scriptures. But again, just want to talk about comparison and taking off that mask and showing Jesus for who we are and where we're at. And so Luke 18, 9 through 14, it's this, it's this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And it just says, Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everyone else. Bad start to a prayer. For, for I don't cheat, I don't sin, and I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like the tax collector. I fast twice a week and give you a tenth of my income. But then the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, the sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so there's two different perspectives that we can kind of learn and glean from this. And the first perspective is the Pharisee. And the Pharisee used the shortcomings of those around him to justify himself. And the Pharisee, for those who don't know, was the, the spiritually elite and scholarly. Uh, they knew the traditions. They were the ones that often were trying to stump Jesus on theology or these circumstances. And so the Pharisees were people who on the outside seemed like they had it all together. Like, like they, they seemed like they were doing the right things. And yet knowing law and tradition is simply not enough to justify yourself. And that, and that we see that in James chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, it says, Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal laws found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
But if you favor some people over others, you are committing sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. And so what we see is what the Pharisee has done is he, he first off, claimed he had not sinned. And that was obviously, like, not true. Even, even the one who on the outside seems like they got everything together. Inside, there was probably still things he was wrestling with and broken with. And so no one except for Jesus walked this earth perfect. And yet we see what he did was he had this hierarchy of sin. And I think often at times the church, we can almost be guilty of this, where where we put one sin as like, oh my gosh, this is the worst of the worst, and yet then we downplay others. And it's almost like we're bartering with God over like which sins I can do and which sins I can't, as if we can pick and choose, as, as, as if that was the heart of the Father. And so, I mean, even to be honest, like this could be kind of a controversial thing, but in the idea of in today's day and age, like we've almost taken like the homosexuality, and we've almost put that as like, like the worst of the worst, and yet like other, it's, it's one of the sexual sins. So what about like premarital sex and relationships? We've almost like downplayed things like that, and we've elevated one sin to look as if it's worse, yet they're both sexual sin. And yet, and throughout all the scriptures, it talks about like, you know, it, you know murder, which, I mean, that's really bad. But then like the idea of then also looking at like, well, if you, if you hate someone else within you, again, it's both sin. To God, he sees sin as simply sin. That there isn't this hierarchical approach of like, well, one's worse than the other. Or like, I shouldn't do that one, but I can probably do this one. Like, we don't get to pick and choose. And yet we see the tax collector almost have this type of mentality to just simply justify himself. That he says, I don't commit adultery. I don't, um, you know, I don't cheat. I don't do these things like the guy over here. But what are the things in his heart that he was wrestling with? doesn't bring those up to Jesus. He only brings the things that he wasn't doing. And you cannot perform well enough to get into the kingdom without this love and grace, that that's what justifies each and every one of us, that without him, we cannot get there on our own, that, that, that we cannot try hard enough, we cannot will ourselves to victory to perform well enough. We, we literally cannot. And in Ephesians 2... Verses 8 through 9, it says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you cannot take credit for this because it is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so no one can boast about it. And again, we see, we see the Pharisee missing the very heart of Jesus. Because it, it, it isn't about earning it. It's about accepting this love and grace that then forward like, like justifies our faith instead of trying to do it on our own, and this idea of even just sin management and trying to just focus on ourselves and, and, well, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. But if you're fixated on sin management, you're looking at sin instead of Jesus over there, that you cannot actually have your back turned looking at one thing and also looking at the other. And so the idea of, of obviously we're flawed, obviously we're broken, and there's grace, but, but if I'm fixated on Jesus, like I cannot be looking at the sin behind me. And so what we, the problem with sin management is this idea that when we try to perform well enough, it comes from a place of pride. And living in this mindset, it's prideful because it takes all of the focus off of Jesus and what he did on the cross, and it puts all of the focus onto yourself. And again, this idea of, am I good enough? Can I, can I earn it? Can I work it? And so in, the, the intention was never meant to just be all on you. It's meant to be on God. 
And again, Luke 18, 14 says, For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And the other thing to keep in mind is that the Pharisees, they were not the people that you and I aspire to be like. Jesus was constantly fighting with the Pharisees. He called them a a brood of vipers. That's harsh. And called them a whitewashed tomb. This idea that you appear like you have it all together on the outside, but in the inside you're dead. And so Jesus was constantly challenging these people. And so this guy and the idea of like, well, I have, I have it all together. I have, you know, and, and Jesus is like, no, you're missing it. And when you try to uplift yourself, like God will humble you. But if you humble yourself before him, that's where he justifies and lifts you up. And just, just a side note, this is more of like a what if. I mean, this isn't necessarily part of the story. But keep in mind that like the men walked into the temple together. And this man boasting before God says, thank you that I'm not like that guy. And, and we see what happens after. What after happens is he, he doesn't even lift his eyes up to God because he's in so much shame that he's beating his chest in sorrow. And I just want to say, the words that you have in your life can either bring life or death to someone's soul. Like, we have to take that seriously. Like, again, what if the tax collector heard that and then just felt shame? Just felt brokenness. And so don't ever let the words you speak about someone put them in bondage. That our role as the church and as brothers and sisters is we need to uplift, to build, and encourage one another. We cannot be bringing death to someone's soul. That, that we have to take that with great responsibility. And we have to steward our tongue well. The second, the second person I want to focus on is, again, the, the tax collector. And, and they were perceived as the worst of the worst. But then as we also look at this idea that he owned his story. But, but the tax collector, this is why they were the worst of the worst. They were Jews who worked for the Romans. And the Romans were the people that were kind of, um, the, well, the Jews hated, they despised. In fact, when Jesus came, the whole prophecy and the Messiah coming, they thought was to uplift them from Roman rule. They thought he was, Jesus was going to be coming with force and violently take over the Romans. And so when Jesus came with a different mentality, that's when the Pharisees actually rejected Jesus. But the, but the Romans were very despised. And so what you have is you have a tax collector who is a Jew working for the Romans. So he's, he's seen as a traitor. But not only is he seen as a traitor, they were rich and greedy by stealing money from the Jews. That they would actually claim to take more money and then pocket the extra for themselves. So they were seen as the worst of the worst because they're, they're despised for being crooked, for being rich off of what other people had. And again, this traitor mentality. And so, so when, when Jesus spends so much time with these tax collectors, like Pharisees and other people can't actually comprehend why he would do that. In fact, one of the 12 apostles was a tax collector. Jesus went up and said, follow me. And, and you see the heart that changed within that man's life. But, but when Jesus was, was questioned these things, I love his answer. His, ampler, his answer is simplistic. But in Luke 5, 31 through 32, he says, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know that they are sinners and need to repent. Again, that's why, you know, when you think about the mask-free ministry, Jesus is saying, come as you are. Like, no, none of us should pretend to have it all together. That we are broken people that desperately need the love and the grace of Jesus. And so the tax collector approaches the temple, but he refuses to look up. 
And I think that there was reverence and respect, but there was also this beating of his chest in shame. But what I love about this idea is that is not where the story ends. Like God is not done with him. And I think often sin and shame can have us broken and knocked down. And we might feel like we're out for the count, but God is not done with you either. That this idea of feeling disqualified, that he refuses to look up and, and God wanting to just remind him of his worth. And here's the cool part. You know why he was justified in his faith? It's because he owned his story. That when you see him approach God, he says, be merciful because I am a sinner. He's not blaming his actions on someone else. He's not using comparison to justify his worth. He's saying, God, this is what I am. I am broken. I am I, sinning and I need you. And so this idea of just owning our story, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Because like we all have those parts of our story. And yet Jesus just wants access to that. That we have to, to take off the mask by owning our story with Jesus. It's not, it's not anybody else's, it's yours. Your faith is yours and yours alone. It's not your parents. It's not your siblings. It's not your friends. It's not a boyfriend. It's not a girlfriend. Your faith is your own. And so you want to be justified in your faith. You have to take off that mask by owning your story with Jesus. And again, when we own our story and when we humble ourselves before him, that's where, we, that's where we're exalted. That's where we're justified. That's where we're covered by this love and grace. But it, but it, but it stems from this owning. And it also stems from this repentance. That he, he, he doesn't just, you know, say like, yeah, I've done some bad stuff. <laughs> you know, like, oops. You know, and just go on his way. That there was a repentive heart within him. That in Matthew 4, it says, From then on, Jesus began to preach, Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. It, it doesn't say, um, you know, start performing at a higher bar. You've been giving me a C, mentality, you know, C effort, and I need, I need a B plus for if you're in order to get there before the kingdom comes back. Like, like he doesn't have this, like, like reach a certain bar. Like, you're, you're almost good enough, but you're not quite. Like, he says, repent. That's it. And so this idea of, again, you see two very different, distinct examples of, of the Pharisee saying, like, thank God I'm not that guy. And, and using his, his works, his deeds, as well as somebody else's lack of to then justify himself before God. And yet that won't do it. It's this repentive heart, this, this pursuit of saying, God, this is where I am. I'm hurting and I'm broken, but this is my story. I'm inviting you into it. Take over. That repentance invites God into the story. While trying to earn it on your own pushes God away from it. Again, we see one coming from a place of pride and another coming from a place of humility. And again, in the end of that parable, he makes it very clear his stance on pride and humility. That if we are prideful before ourselves and before God and for others, we will be humbled. That God is just. But at the same time, if we humble ourselves before him, we are, that's where we're protected. That's where we're covered and surrounded by his love and grace. And I just, I want to say this too. I think, you know, Jesus wants to set us free from comparison. I think Jesus wants to set us free from anxiety, from shame, from insecurity. That taking off that mask and actually being authentic before God takes a level of vulnerability it can be terrifying to be like, God, this is actually... Because I think often we feel like if God saw the real picture, he would run. But there is no, there is no mess big enough in your life to scare God away. That he wants to embrace you for all that we are. And so God wants to set us free, but there's another step that once Jesus sets you free, you have to set your own heart and your own mind and your own soul free as well. 
that I think oftentimes like Jesus sets us free, like he said that in his doctrine, but then we continue to have these lies, we continue to have these comparisons just shape us for who we are, and God set us free, but we can't set ourselves free, that mentally we're trapped, and so we have to set ourselves free, because here's the thing, the tax collector may have walked away justified in his faith, but there was still a moment where he had to decide to look up, and to actually accept God's love and his grace, because he may continually be beating his chest in shame, refusing to look up, and yet God is saying, like, like I've covered you, you're, the one, you're justified, now look up. Like, like, I have things in store, and so often there's this step of, of we've been set free, but are we willing to look up? Are we continually looking down? Our head just filled with shame and with brokenness. And so this idea of comparison and, and even just self-fulfilling prophecies, like, what are some of the things that have been said over your life that put you in bondage? Constantly being told, I'm never good enough, or I could never be what this person is, or I could never achieve those dreams, or, or anything like that, that often at times we don't realize, but this self-fulfilling prophecy is this idea of things that have been just said repeatedly, repeatedly to your face and about your life to the point where whether it's true or untrue, you start to believe it. It starts to shape who you are. And so there's this moment, again, where God sets you free, but you have to make the intentional effort to say, I'm not going to walk in that anymore. If, uh, if the worship team wants to come back up. I'm just going to close with one last story. Because, I, again, I think it's easy for that. I think it's easy for Christ to set us free, but do we set ourselves free? And uh, I don't know if any of you guys know how, how elephants are trained and prepped for getting ready for the circus. And bear with me, I'm an animal nerd. I'll talk about animals all day. This would be the closing story. But these elephants are taken at birth, and at birth an elephant weighs roughly about 200 pounds, which is a big baby coming out from birth, but in comparison to their adult life, is still pretty small. And so what they'll do is they'll take this elephant, and they'll tie, uh, they'll tie like a weight around its ankle, and they'll chain it to a stake. And so this elephant just is trying to break free. It's trying to fight. It's kicking. It's, it's screaming. It's pleading. It just wants to set itself free, but it knows that it can't because the chain is too strong. And so this, there comes this point where the elephant is broken. The elephant is defeated physically and mentally. That you look and you actually see that you know, the, the ankle itself is bru- bruised. It's broken. It's bleeding. Like it cannot break free no matter how hard it tries. And so mentally, it learns, I cannot break that chain. Like, no matter, no matter what I do, I will never become free. And so this elephant just accepts this. And yet, the interesting thing enough is that an adult elephant can weigh approximately twelve to 13,000 pounds. And the elephant would have easily the strength to break free. But not only that, when it's an adult, they don't even have the large stake anymore. The stake is replaced with a wooden stick and string. And yet this massive elephant will remain in bondage, just staying over there because mentally it told itself a long time ago that it could never break free. That it was trapped, that no matter how hard it fought, it was going to remain there. And so for an entire adult life, the elephant will never try to break free again. And I think oftentimes, spiritually, we can feel like that elephant. That maybe growing up, maybe there was something that was spoken over you that just puts you in bondage.
bondage, this comparison of, well, I can never do that, or I can never dream big enough, or, or God can't heal me. If only God knew what I did, he wouldn't want a part of the story. And so mentally, we've checked out. We feel like I can never shake that. That's just a part of who I am. And, and God is saying, no, like, 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 look at who you are today. Jesus has replaced that large metal stake with this wooden string and we have the ability to break free if we choose for ourselves but at the same time that is a conscious effort we have to make for ourselves that Jesus can set ourselves free but we have to allow ourselves to be free as well that I think Jesus again I go back to the parable of of, uh, just looking at this tax collector and I almost just see God broken before this tax collector saying just look up and he refuses to look up to God because he feels just this sin. He feels this shame. He feels worthless from comparison. And yet God just wants him to look up to remind himself of who he actually is. I mean, Jesus constantly hung out with tax collectors and you look at the transformation that took place. That one encounter with Jesus is enough for your life to never be the same. And so again, we go, I mean, this idea of, do we stay in bondage? Like, yes, we are broken. But God made us whole. And we don't need to live in bondage. That Jesus is, is wanting to set us free from lies, from insecurities, from comparisons. But do we allow ourselves to be free indeed? Or do we stay in this bondage, in this brutal cycle? That John eight thirty six says, So if the Son sets you free, you are truly free. That it is that simple but we have to walk in it and we have to claim it for ourselves. That it's about owning our story. It's saying, this is where I'm at. I'm not looking to the right or to the left to justify my worth. Jesus justifies my worth. Nothing else, not a relationship, not a sport, not a hobby, not school. Nothing can give me the satisfaction of justifying my worth except for Jesus and owning my story. That God is desperately pleading with you to walk out in freedom with your heart and your head held high that you can never out the love and grace of Jesus, no matter how hard you try. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Jesus, I'm so thankful that you don't give up on us. That society would look at this tax collector as deemed unworthy, as the worst of the worst, and often we can feel that way. Or often at times we feel like that elephant that just fought, that just tried to break free. And no matter how hard it tried, it remained in the same place and so it gave up. Jesus, give us new perspective if we need it. Set our heart free knowing that we have the strength to break free. And would we look up that there is not a mess big enough in our lives to scare God away, that he wants to embrace us for all that we are. And all we have to do is invite him into the story and have a repentant heart of saying, Jesus, this is where I am. I'm broken. Fix me. Jesus, would we allow ourselves to do that? And I just pray against a spirit of shame. That Romans 8.1 says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That if somebody is just wrestling, feeling unworthy, Jesus, remind them of their worth. Remind them of their value. That it doesn't come from performing well enough. It doesn't come from reaching an, like, as, like a certain bar expectation. It comes from your love and your grace. And that alone justifies our worth. So Jesus, we thank you. We love you. And we praise you in your name. Amen.